Amen. It was finished upon the cross. Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 130. Text this morning. Psalm 130. This is a song of ascents. Hear now the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for a text like this. It reminds us of your loving kindness, your forgiveness, that you are a God who forgives. That in the depths that we can cry to you and find mercy because of Christ, because of the cross, because of the gospel. And I pray for your people This morning, as we read this text and meditate on this text, think about it, that it would be an encouragement, it would be helpful, you would give them grace as they go about their days and their battle with remaining sin. They would continually look to Christ. So we ask for your favor. May we put our hope in you this morning. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. It is the middle of August, and school begins tomorrow for many of you, maybe to the consternation of students and to maybe the joy of parents and the trepidation of teachers. I was there once. I understand what it is like. There may be some anxiety. There may be some anticipation. And there's something very true, particularly about our school, Faith Christian Academy, or if you are educating your kids at home in a Christian environment, there's something true that's happening beginning tomorrow, and that it is a battle for truth. There's a battle going on for hearts and for minds, a battle for God's truth over and against what the culture is telling us. It's a battle that takes place at the heart level, so that what Paul says in Romans, that our children would not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of their minds. But that goes for all of us. All of us need to have our hearts and our minds continually renewed, continually transformed and reminded of what is true. So the battle isn't just for our children, it's for all of us. And some of you this morning are weary 
of the battle. And there's a specific part of the battle that I want to think about this morning. And it is a particular battle that is most wearisome, I know, in my own heart and perhaps in yours. Where believers, we need to bring the truth of God's word to bear in our hearts and minds. And it is this, the battle for and against remaining sin. The battle against our old man. And perhaps this morning you are weary of the fact that this side of heaven, you continually sin. You continually battle sin. Perhaps you're overwhelmed with your sin. And maybe your conscience stings at the thought of how you have wronged your Lord this week. Maybe there is a twinge of guilt. You look at your life and the growth in the Lord isn't where you thought it would be at this point in your life. As we grow and we mature in our faith, this process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, being more transformed to be like Him, we are troubled by the presence of sin that still remains. It is like Isaiah when he sees the throne room of God. Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Andrew Murray puts it this way in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He says this, indeed, The more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love for God, the more conscious he will be of the gravity of the sin that remains, and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. And so we battle this side of heaven. And we must remind ourselves what is true. And that's my prayer as we listen to Psalm 130 today. The psalmist is in a similar place. He finds himself in the depths. He's overwhelmed with sin. He's crying out for mercy to God. And as you battle the sin that remains of the old man, and you're confronted with your sometimes faltering progress and sanctification, you're confronted with a heart that is prone to wander, as fickle, and you're overwhelmed. The message this morning is very simple. Is you would cry out once again to God for mercy, to the God who forgives, and put your hope once again in your redemption. And that final redemption that is 
to come. And so Psalm 130, eight verses, uh, four couplets, two verses each of uh, <clears throat> uh, each one. We'll, we'll look at each verse uh, or each part of the psalm in two verse uh, chunks here. So verses one and two, a great cry. Verses three and four, a great comfort. Verses five and six, a great anticipation. And then the final verses are a great hope. So a great cry and a great hope. We don't know exactly the background of this psalm. Some would say that this is a psalm of David. It doesn't say that here in the text. We know that it is a song of ascents. Some would say it's David and it has parallels with Psalm 51, that it is like his confession and his remorse over his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. We don't know that, but we do know that it fits the, uh, it fits a lament psalm. It fits the category of a lament. It was a song of ascents, means it's a song of going up. It was maybe written for the pilgrims as they traveled up to Jerusalem. They would sing this song on their way to the feast. You always go up to Jerusalem. You never go down. You go up to Jerusalem. And so they would sing this song as they go up. Or perhaps it was after the exile and the, pil- and the, and the exiles are coming home back to Jerusalem, and they're singing this song as they go up. It is a song of going up. There's a movement to this text, and I hope that you see that there's a movement from lament to hope. And so verses 1 and 2, a great cry. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We don't know the exact situation, but we know that the psalmist is in trouble. He is lamenting. Out of the depths, this word is often used with the sea, the water, sometimes interchangeably with the watery depths or the deep waters. You get the sense that the psalmist is overwhelmed. In ancient times, the sea was a place of mystery. It was unsettling. It was stormy and unpredictable. The author is in trouble. Psalm 69, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. It's the same word. And the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Very similar. What is the nature of these depths that he is in in verse 1? We don't know. It doesn't say in verses 1 and 2, but we get a clue in verse 3. We've read the whole psalm here, and we know that verse 3 begins to speak of iniquity. Speaks of forgiveness in verse 4. So we know that that is the context. His trouble is his sin. I cry to you from the depths. He utters this great cry. What makes this a bit challenging as you read in your quiet time in the, with the Lord in the mornings is you don't have the audio. You can't hear it. And so you need to put yourself in his place. In the watery depths, can you hear the anguish? Can you hear the lament? It is a great cry from the depths. It is a specific cry, and it is a verbal cry. Look at verse 2. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Notice the repetition of voice. It's not a silent prayer from a safe place. It's a loud cry. The author is giving voice to his trouble. And the word here, 
I cry to you is the word kara. Hebrew, it means summoning someone for help, especially in, in critical need. It's a specific sense. It's not a generic call like, oh, if you're out there, if anyone is out there, oh, Lord, if, if you're there, it's not that. Is anyone out there? If there's a God in heaven? No. The author is calling specifically to the God of the Bible. It's, it's vocative. Oh, Lord. And if you look closely, look at the end of verse 1. You have some of your versions translated as Yahweh. Oh, Lord, Yahweh. But at the beginning of verse 2, oh, Lord, that's a different. That's Adonai. You see that. He uses the special name of God, the great I am, the self-existent one. Oh, Yahweh, hear my cry. And then at the beginning of verse 2, he says, oh, Lord, oh, Master, Much like a servant would speak to his master, he's essentially saying, I'm calling on you, O King and Lord, O Sovereign and Master. Listen to the language that is used. He's saying, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. Listen. Hear my plea. He's saying, please pay attention. Do you get the earnestness? The humility, the petition, he's pleading for mercy. Some translations might say, cry for help. I think that's okay. Uh, But I think that the context helps refine it to a plea for mercy. Or the voice of my supplications. A cry for help might mean that he is sick. Or he is in physical danger. Or he has enemies, or maybe there's some persecution. But in the immediate context, in verse 3, we know it is sin. We know it is iniquity. And so he's not crying for help. I don't need help. I need your mercy. He pleads for mercy. What is mercy? I had to look. You kind of know it, but you don't know it. I think I know what mercy is. Look this up in Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary. I recommend that for you if you look up words. Look in the old 1828 Dictionary. Noah Webster. He says this. Mercy is this, that benevolence, that mildness or tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries, to forbear punishment. It implies benevolence, tenderness, mildness, pity, compassion, clemency, and is exercised only toward offenders. Mercy is a distinguishing attribute of the supreme being. That was in the dictionary. You begin to get a sense of the heart posture of the author of our psalm. I'm aware of my sin, and I need your mercy. I need your benevolence, your mildness. Verse 3, this was a great cry. He pleads for mercy. He's looking for comfort, and he begins to see this in verse 3. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Notice, again, two different names for God. O Lord Yahweh, 
O Lord Adonai, who could stand. It's very personal for our psalmist. He is in great distress. It is sin. It is iniquity. If you mark iniquities, this isn't financial trouble. It's not physical danger. It's not, he's not stressed out. It is his sin that is chiefly in mind. And the thought of God knowing his sin deeply troubles him. In fact, it's unbearable. If you should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? Notice the word mark. The word means to keep watch over, to observe, to keep track of, to have regard for, to watch. Oh Lord, if you would watch over my sin. Who could stand? Literally, who could endure? The re- it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Who can stand before Almighty God with a record of sins? No one. No one can endure his holy presence. Who can remain? No one. Psalm 76, you, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand, same word, who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? He is saying, Lord, if you keep track of my sins, if if you're constantly observing them and watching them and having regard for them, There's no way that I could endure your holy presence. It's impossible that I could remain before you. This list of sins, these marks against me would keep growing and growing and growing. And so my great cry is a cry for mercy. My question is, what do you do, believer, when you recognize and are confronted by your remaining sin. I look at my own life and I see how my heart wanders, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. My coldness at times to the word, my indifference sometimes for the lost, my lack of zeal, My failure to fully trust God in all things. And the list is long and the record is long. And if they remain on this ledger, the list will get even longer. And if God keeps observing and watching this, I am undone. If you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could endure? But... Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. What a wonderful conjunction, but note the contrasting use of the hypothetical, if you do, if you do, but in fact you don't. If you do, but you don't. You don't keep a running record. You don't watch over my sins. With you, there is forgiveness. The psalmist is saying that this is God's nature. This is who he is. This is part and parcel of what, who God is. A forgiving God. With you, there is forgiveness. He remembers this from his depths, and this is his great comfort. His trouble over his sin. He reminds himself, you might say that he preaches to himself. This God 
is the God who forgives. He reminds himself that God is a forgiving God. That God could easily keep track of all my sins. He could easily mark them down and watch over them and have regard for them. But he doesn't. Because with God, there is forgiveness. Isaiah 43 speaks of Yahweh. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 43 25. Taken in light of Psalm 130, I will not mark or watch over your sins against you. I want you to turn back. You need to do this. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103. 103. I want you to see this. Put your eyes on this. Psalm 103, starting in verse 8. You're familiar with it. I want you to see it. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is the God who forgives. We're starting to hear hope-filled language, hope-full language. There is a light in the depths. And even in the depths of my sin and my iniquity, I know that I can come to God, the God with whom there is forgiveness and there is hope, 1 John 1, 9. And notice the results, back to Psalm 130. Notice the results of God's forgiveness with God. With you there is forgiveness, what? That you may be feared. The end of verse 4. That you may be feared. This word fear is to inspire reverence. A godly fear, an awe, a worship. It's the same word when used as an adjective to describe God. The word is awesome. From Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. The older version of the King James actually would say terrible in the best sense. The great and terrible God. The fearsome God. The one who should be feared and reverenced in awe. This God. With you is their forgiveness that you may be feared. The fact that God is forgiving and merciful, that he doesn't watch over my sin against me, that my sins are forgiven should cause me awe and worship and wonder what God is like this that doesn't wipe out his enemies, but in fact forgives their sins. Our God is not like the God of the pagans. What God is like this who doesn't continually observe, doesn't continually observe my sins marking them down in a ledger and keeping track. We should be awestruck. Worship. Fear this God. I think there's a twofold fear that we can infer from this. Which should cause me to fear this great and fearsome God, this awesome God. And it should cause me to fear sinning against this God. I would want nothing to do with sin that I would fear offending him. 
And notice what's happening now in these first four verses. Taken as a whole, there is a movement upward. There is a going up. There is an ascending from the depths to hope. He moves from the depths and he's beginning to comfort himself with truth. He's preaching to himself truth. The psalmist recognizes his sin and the majesty of God and the fact that God forgives sin. And he pleads for mercy with the hope and the knowledge that God is a forgiving God, a movement upward. A great cry, a great comfort, and now in verses 5 and 6, a great anticipation. My soul waits for the Lord. We just sang a beautiful song. With the comforting fact that God forgives sin, this movement upward continues. Look at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than the watchmen for the morning. We hear the word wait three times. You see the repetition, three times. And one time we hear the word hope, waiting and hoping, waiting and hoping. This is what the psalmist is doing when he's in the depths. By repetition, he's emphasizing the waiting. Think about the word wait. What do we wait for? We wait for answers. We wait for the phone to ring. We wait for our spouses. We wait for food to arrive. We wait for school to start, some of you. We wait for fill in the blank. There's more going on than just a simple waiting here in this text. The word wait is an intensified form. It's not just wait. It is waiting with eager anticipation, with an expectant hope. What is he waiting for? The immediate context is clear. I'm waiting for the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits with his whole being He waits for the Lord at the depths of who he is. In the midst of his humility, his stinging conscience of his remaining sin, he's crying out. What he needs most in that moment is the very presence of God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. And we could infer from verse 5 at the end, it says, and in his word I hope. Hoping in the word, it's the word of God that brings him comfort while he's waiting for the presence of God, the nearness of the Lord and the comfort of his word. But in the larger context, waiting implies something that is incomplete, something unrealized, something unfinished. Waiting is future-oriented. Waiting looks like anticipation. It looks like looking ahead for something. He's anticipating something in the future. And we're going to see that as it moves through the text. There's something coming. But how does he wait? Verse 6. Look how he waits. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Repeating himself twice, again, for emphasis. I think the word watchman is deliberate here. If you go back to verse 3, the the word, uh, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, the word mark is the same form, is a slightly different form of the word watchman. And so God 
if you would watch over my sin, if you're constantly watching over my sin, who could stand? But then he comes back and he uses a slightly different form of the same word, more than watchman for the morning. I could not endure if you keep record or if you keep watching over my sin. And I am awestruck that you forgive sin, so I am going to watch for you. I am going to observe, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to wait. I'm going to pay attention, and I'm going to watch and hope more than watchmen for the morning. You think about a watchman, the sentinel standing on the fortress or at the city gate, the guard. What do you know about watchmen? They had to be alert. They had to be aware of the danger. It's dark. It's cold. It's lonely. It's hard to see the dangers that lurk about. There were no spotlights, right? He has a torch. You can't see that far out there. It's dark and it's cold. He's got to warn the city of impending danger. Watches were split up in four or five-hour segments through the night. And the last watch, the morning watch, was from about 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. from there to sunrise for four or five hours. And it's always darkest before the dawn. And it's always coldest before the dawn. But when dawn comes, the danger and the night and the threats are over. And so the watchman is constantly fixing his gaze on the horizon. He's looking for that gleam of light to crest the horizon, that sliver of sunlight. Because then it is all over. It is safe. And I'm looking for the dawn. And I'm waiting for the Lord. Not like watchmen, but more than watchmen for the morning. Fixing his gaze, not on the depths, not on the darkness, not on his sin, but on the horizon. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Psalm 143. Psalm 5. O Lord, in the morning hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice and wait. This is the psalmist's great anticipation. A great cry, a great comfort, a great anticipation. He's eagerly expectant for the Lord. He's looking hard for the Lord. He's hoping in His Word. And He's watching, ultimately, for a final redemption. We'll see that in the next two verses. Again, the ascending movement of the text. Pick it up in verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The rider is reaching the pinnacle. He may still be in the depths, but His heart is at the heights. He is ascending. He's preached to Himself the forgiving nature of the God that He loves. All the while, eagerly and expectantly waiting. And now watch what he does. In verse 7, he proclaims this truth to the community, to his people. The psalmist has moved from the individual 
to the community. It's moved from the depths to the heights. It's moved from an individual sin to corporate hope, from brokenness to hope. And he proclaims the hope that he has to his brothers and sisters. He encourages the congregation, O Israel, hope in the Lord. It's an imperative. He's imploring them. Put your hope in God. I'm trusting in and I'm waiting on the Lord. He is a forgiving God. He's not watching over your sins to hold them against you. I've been in the depths and I'm looking to God. Will you look with me, hope with me in the Lord? Now, why should Israel hope in the Lord? Well, look at the next stanza. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. There is faithful love. This is the word chesed. You may be somewhat familiar with it. It's a difficult word to translate from the Hebrew into the English. It's an amalgam of God's special love that's wrapped up in covenant faithfulness and kindness and mercy and steadfastness. And with the Lord, there is loving kindness. There is steadfast love. But it's also a reference back to verse 4. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. And even more, the end of verse 7, and with him is plentiful redemption. Do you see the repetition? With him, with him, with him. With him is forgiveness. With him is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. The New American Standard says it's abundant the New English, translation, New English translation says that he is more than willing to deliver. It means make much, make many. There's much redemption. The Lord's redemption is abundant. The Lord's redemption is great. The word redemption is ransom. It's a price paid to buy somebody back out of slavery. The Lord purchased the people for himself. At great cost, he redeemed his people from slavery, from their bondage to sin. In other words, great is the redemption and great is the pardon. It is abundant. It is plentiful. And this costly redemption is future-oriented. Look at verse, our final verse, verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He will the anticipation of verses 5 and 6 is coming to light. There is a future full redemption. There is a future final redemption. And note the language. It's all-encompassing. All his iniquities. The word iniquity can bring several nuances with it. It could mean sin itself or, or the sum total of sin. It can mean consequences for sin. It can mean the guilt of sin. It can have various nuances, but God will redeem all of it. All of it will one day be redeemed. The sin and the guilt and the consequences, there is full pardon, full deliverance. It's fully paid. This is the great hope of the psalmist. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. There will come a day when sin will be no more. One day 
in the future, that final day when sin will be put away forever. And you think about our psalmist here. He's living in the old covenant. Under the old covenant system with animal sacrifices, that's all he had. It's what God had given But he had to be aware of this future orientation that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. And so he had to be looking to the future with great anticipation, with eager expectation of the promise of a better sacrifice, the ultimate forgiveness through the Messiah that is to come. And that is... Jesus, when he will experience full redemption, sin will be put away forever. He was looking ahead to the cross, to the gospel. And that's our text. A great cry, a great comfort, a great anticipation, and a great hope. And so what shall we do with this text? Well, I want to return to the battle, your battle with remaining sin, your battle against remaining sin, especially if you find yourself in similar depths this morning. Your conscience is pricked. It's wounded by the fact that you still sin against your Savior. You have wronged him this week, and so have I. And so I want to return to the question that I asked earlier. What do you do, believer, when you are confronted with your sin? And how do you perceive God in all of this? If you are in Christ, then remind yourself, preach to yourself the truths that we've been looking at in Psalm 130. Tell yourself that God is a God of loving kindness and mercy. He is a God who forgives Preach to yourself that in Christ there is abundant redemption. It's plentiful. It's full. Do you perceive God to be miserly with his forgiveness? Does he begrudge you when you come to him for forgiveness? He's given you his son. Take that thought captive. He is not miserly with his forgiveness. Take that thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ. Return to Christ. Find in him full redemption in abundance. Remind yourself that if you are in Christ, all of your trespasses have been forgiven. And the record of debt that has stood against you, stood between you and God, has been nailed to the cross. Amen? God is not marking your sins in a ledger. He's not watching over them. Do you think that there's a ledger in heaven? That ledger doesn't exist. There's no record. Whatever record you had was nailed to the cross. The only record you need is the record of Christ's righteousness. Look to him. Colossians 2, Brother Brent read it. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him by canceling the record of debt that stood against us 
with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so when you do sin, you will. And do as our psalmist does, cry out to your Savior from the depths and plead once again for his unfailing mercy. He is ready and willing and waiting to forgive. His ears are attentive to his children. They are not closed off. Remind yourself, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Look again to Christ. But if you are not in Christ this morning, if you have never repented, if you have never trusted his finished work on the cross, then you really are separated from God and you really are in the depths. And your sins really are being held against you. And no one can endure the presence of almighty, holy God with a record of sin. But I have good news. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself on the cross. And because He was crucified, and because He died, and because He was buried, and because He was raised again on the third day, put, if you put your faith in Him, your record of sin will be wiped clean. Your sins will be forgiven and you can take part in the abundant redemption that Christ offers. Young people, do not ignore the gospel. Do not ignore Christ. That goes for everyone else. Call on his name while he may be found. Finally, our future hope. This great hope of final redemption. We said our psalmist is having to look forward to the future. And we stand on this side of the cross. It's clear. But even today on this side of the cross, there is a sense in which our salvation is not yet final. We live in the already and not yet. Yes, when you repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ, you're immediately saved. The person trusting in Christ is declared not guilty. Their sins are forgiven. They're united with Christ. Their old nature has been decisively defeated. If you're united with Christ, you have died to sin, and the power of sin no longer reigns. And yet we still battle, and our ultimate redemption won't happen until glory. It was a beautiful service for our dear sister Anne this week. And Anne no longer fights sin. Anne has finished the race. And her sanctification is complete. Now it's glorification, right? 
She no longer fights sin. And so this side of heaven, we will fight sin. And we continue to look and anticipate that final redemption. And it will all be done away. And we will no longer battle. Romans 8, 23. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We've been adopted and we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And so, dear saint, look to the horizon. Look to the first dawn of the morning, eagerly anticipating more than the watchman for the presence of God. Wait for the Lord. Cry out to the Lord and put your hope in Oh, Father, may that be true. May we, every day, be putting our hope in you. So thankful for our salvation and the redemption that you have given and yet eagerly anticipating that final and full redemption when all will be made new. Father, may we with joy once again look to Christ who is abundant with forgiveness and loving kindness. Thank you for all that he is for us. May we look once again to him. Encourage your people this morning. Go with them and help them and give them mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Stand, let's close. I can.